Hello, I'm Danny Aiken, president of Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary. We want to thank you for listening to this chapel message. Our mission at Southeastern is to seek to glorify the Lord Jesus Christ by equipping students to serve the church and fulfill the Great Commission. We hope that you enjoy this chapel message and that you will visit our website. It's www.sebts.edu. There you can learn more about our school and what the Lord is doing here. We hope you enjoy the message. Thank you for being a part of what we're doing here. All right. Well, it is an honor to be here at, uh, at my alma mater, Southeastern. And uh, I also can say that I feel your pain as a student. I know what it's like, but my journey uh, has ended in uh, academia, I think. I think I will see Jesus face to face before I go back to school again. I think it's quite possible. We'll see how, see how that goes. But uh, I want to invite you to open up your Bibles today to the book of Ephesians, chapter 5. You know, you, you are in the right place as a student here at Southeastern. You really are. I love this seminary with all my heart. But I was reminded sitting there worshiping the Lord that our qualification to preach the gospel is not found in a degree. It's found in the blood of Jesus. And it's only by his blood I'm able to be here. And it's only by his blood that we're able to talk about and address the subject that I want to talk about today. I debated on whether or not to preach this message. Um, I'm going, uh, we're preaching verse by verse through the, through the book of Ephesians in my church, where in Ephesians 5, Paul begins to address sexual sin, not necessarily sex, but sexual sin. And, and I, I talked to Dr. Marita and Dr. Aiken and just asked, hey, would it be okay if I, if I address this issue in chapel? And um, Dr. Marita reminded me that unfortunately this is not an issue as seminary students that we are immune to. And so we're going to jump into this. Even if this is not an issue in your life or a wrestle or a struggle in your life, I promise you, as a pastor, I promise you, it is a struggle in the life of the people that you will lead in your congregations um, it is so profoundly, or rather prolific, I would say, in, um, in our churches and in our society that is something that we have to begin to attack and address through the scripture and through our preaching and with our lives, or it is going to overwhelm us, I'm afraid. And so let's jump in. So hopefully if this, again, does not apply to you, then it will at least prepare you and equip you to equip others. So let's read this together in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 1. Paul, before he ever talks about the issue of sexual immorality, reminds us of who we are. He says in verse 1, he goes, Therefore be imitators of God as beloved children, and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. And so it begins before anything, and he says, Hey, I want to remind you, you're a child of God, we're to walk as a child of God, we're to, and here's what it looks like to walk as a child of God, we're to walk in love in the way that Jesus loved us and gave himself up for us. When we do that, it smells good to God, literally is what he's saying. And then in verse three, he begins to give the first example of what it looks like for an individual who's walking in love as a imitator of God. He says in verse three, but sexual immorality, but sexual immorality, that's a Greek word, porneia, it just means all forms of sexual immorality. He says sexual immorality and all impurity. That's a word that means to be mixed. In other words, to be impure means you have one foot in the kingdom and one foot in the world. 
To be, to be mixed or to be impure means that you have a part of your heart that you give to Jesus and then you have a part of your heart that you're giving away to something else. Paul says in verse three, but sexual immorality or sexual debauchery or porneia and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you as is proper among the saints. You know what that word means. Saints, the word means those who have been set apart, that are holy. All it means is this, is that you are a people, we are a people as believers that have been set apart for the Lord. He's saying that as men and women who have been set apart for the Lord, sexual uh, immorality and impurity and covetousness should have no part of our lives as men and women who have been set apart for the Lord. And then in verse four, he says, let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking which are out of place, but instead let there be thanksgiving. And all he means by that is simply that sexual immorality is not only the act of sexual immorality is improper among those of us who have been set apart, but to even joke about it is improper for those of us who have been set apart. And then in verse five, he begins to talk and explain how seriously God takes sexual immorality. Explains to us just how big of a deal Porneia, impurity, is to the Lord. And in verse 5, he says, For you may be sure of this, Paul says. Paul says, You can take this to the bank, is what he's saying. You may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure, or who is covetous, that is an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you, Paul says, with empty words. In other words, I don't care what the culture's saying. I don't care what the word on the street is, Paul is saying, let no one deceive you with these empty words for because of these things, that is sexual morality, impurity, and covetousness, for because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. And then in verse seven, he says, therefore, in light of all that, do not be partners with them, do not be a co-participant in them. Paul says, in light of the fact that the sexually immoral and the impure have no inheritance in the kingdom of God, in light of the fact that the wrath of God is going to come upon the sons of disobedience, Paul makes a declarative statement, do not be a participant in those things. Now, verse 8 is what I want to look at next and where I want to spend some time today. But what Paul does in verse 8 is this, is he explains to us probably the foundational reason for why. And I want you to hear this. He explains the foundational reason for why you and I, as men and women who have been set apart for the Lord, one of the foundational reasons why we are to turn from sin in our life, sexual or otherwise. So whatever you wrestle with, whatever you deal with, whatever way that sin manifests itself in your life, what Paul's gonna say next is he's kinda gonna give us the reason. He's gonna say this is why you and I are to turn and run from immorality, sin in our lives. Let's look back at verse five. He says, for you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous, that is an idolater, has no adherence in the kingdom of God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore, do not be partakers with them. Look at verse eight. He says, four, four. At one time, you were darkness. Here's why you turn from those things. For at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of the light. Paul says, here's why as a believer, 
as a saint, as a holy one, you are to turn from the sin in your life, he says, because you were darkness, but now you are light. You were darkness at one time in the past, you were darkness, but now you are light. Now, the most important thing about this statement is that the scripture does not say that before your conversion, you were in darkness. It says something much more profound than that. The scripture says that before your conversion, you were darkness. Before your conversion to Christ, darkness was your identity. What the scripture is saying here is the, the Bible is not saying that, that darkness were, were simply the deeds that you did before Jesus, but that darkness literally is or was who you were. You were it was your identity before Christ. And so Paul says, hey, look, we, we turn from sexual immorality. We run, we repent from sexual morality and impurity because there has been a change in our identity. That's why. And then he goes on. He says, for, for at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. And so walk as children of a light. Again, the most important thing about that statement is the scripture doesn't say that, that after your conversion, you're now in the light, even though that is true. The scripture says that after your conversion to Christ, you are light in the Lord. And that's why Jesus said to us, you are the light of this world. He, he's not simply talking, he's not only talking about actions that we're to go out and do, but he's talking about a brand new identity that we have in Christ Jesus. Light are not just actions we accomplish. Light is now our identity in him. It's who we are. And so if somebody asks you a question of why you turn from sin, which is becoming increasingly foreign in this world, somebody that walks in holiness... This is one of the most biblical answers you could give them why you walk in holiness. If somebody were to ask you, you know, why, if, if you're engaged, you know, why are you and your fiance not having sex until you're married? Why, why are you waiting till your wedding night? If you're single and, and, and people notice that you are saving yourself for marriage and they ask you, why do you do that? Because it is foreign in this world if they ask you why. If, if you're a man and your friends notice, the non-believing friends, if they notice why, or, or that you do not look at pornography and they ask you why, why do you not look at pornography? Uh, if you're a man and you guard your eyes and your friends notice that you don't gawk at women, that you, that you keep your eyes pure. If you're a woman and, and folks notice that you don't flirt with men that are, that are not your husband and they ask you why. One of the most biblical answers that you could give them is not because I'm a seminary student. It's not because I'm a, I'm a professor at Southeastern. One of the most biblical answers to the question, if someone notices that you walk in the light, is you able to tell them it is because I am the light. I, I don't do the deeds of darkness because I was darkness and that is not who I am any longer. I have been changed I have a new identity in, in Jesus Christ. Which is why, by the way, because you have this new identity, 
as the light that the darkness no longer feels okay to you anymore. Did you know that? Dr. Aiken, can I throw this to you? Good catch. All right. Have you ever thought about that? Have you ever wondered why, as a believer, sin is, just doesn't sit right with you anymore? Is it because, as the scientists say, that um, it's a chemical reaction occurring in your brain as a product of evolution? That when you sin, it doesn't feel right anymore? Or is it something much deeper than that? It's because you are doing actions that are now contrary to your very nature. Is that why? Let me illustrate what I'm talking about of, of how actions that you can do that are contrary to your nature don't feel right to you anymore. And uh, let me preface this by saying that um, as a pastor in Austin, Texas, I love the Longhorns, the Texas Longhorns. Like, I love them. They're good people. They, they are. They are. Dr. Aiken, they're good folks. I love them. They go to my church. I love pastoring them. Um, I have grown to appreciate the Longhorns. As, as Dr. Aiken said, I wrote a book with one of the greatest Longhorn quarterbacks in history, Colt McCoy. He and I are friends. We go hunting together. We hang out. He, he's, he's amazing. And so I love the Longhorns. Now, but here's the thing. Even though I live in Austin, Texas, even though I love Texas Longhorns, even though I am completely saturated in an environment of Longhorns, I am not a Longhorn. I am a Texas Aggie. I'm a fighting Texas Aggie. And it doesn't matter how much I'm around Longhorns, it doesn't matter um, how much I'm, I'm in the midst of Longhorns, I am an Aggie. And I became acutely aware of how my identity as a fighting Texas Aggie is at odds with being around Texas Longhorns a couple of years ago. I got invited by Coach Barnes, the uh, basketball coach of the University of Texas Longhorn basketball team to go on a trip with them to Michigan State which is a staunch basketball school. And it was their homecoming in Michigan State. And so I got in the airplane, I flew with the team, we went, went into the locker room, and I think I was wearing maroon. I think I was wearing my home colors. And uh, Coach Barnes said, Matt, you can't walk out, out on the court wearing, wearing maroon, you gotta wear burnt orange. And so he gave me this coat, and so I put it on. Now the problem was, is that I had to go out and get, and, and in order to get to my seat right behind the Longhorn bench, I couldn't go up into the stands because I didn't have a ticket. I had to walk across the floor in order to get to my seat. And this is homecoming in Michigan State, and they love their basketball. They've won national championships. And this place, man, it was rocking. I was sitting there kind of waiting to walk onto the court. Basketball team has not come out yet. I'm waiting, and this place is, is just hopping. And I kind of peek around, and that, that place is, they're feeling the music, and they're jumping up and down or whatever. And the team is still in the locker room, but I had to get to my seat. So here I am wearing burnt orange, and I walk out onto the court. And I'm the first human being in the building to walk onto the court wearing burnt orange of the Texas Longhorns. And when I walked out on the court, those people went bananas, man. They went nuts. I mean, I was, they still, the whole place, on the true story, the whole place was like, boo. And they went crazy and they started booing me and they're yelling at me. And I kid you not, before Jesus, they started throwing stuff at me. And this, I don't know how this dude got a piece, big thing of newspaper. He had watered it up and he threw it. It got hit in the head. It hurt. Bam! I got hit in the head and I finally got to my seat. I'm the only person in the place wearing burnt orange. People are cussing at me. It's horrible. I'm thinking, I'm, I'm going to die in this room right now. 
And it hit me in that moment. I am being persecuted for being a Texas Longhorn. And I'm a Texas Aggie. And the whole time, just the whole time I'm wearing this orange and it just didn't feel right. It just didn't sit well in my soul. And, and, and church, that is what, that is what Paul is, is saying here, believer. He's saying that you need to understand that the day you got saved, that the moment that you trusted in Jesus as your Lord and Savior, you became the light. So you are. And, and, and the reason that, that darkness, that sin will never, ever, ever, ever again sit well with you is because it is not who you are anymore. It's not who you are. And so it's literally impossible for you to feel at home in an identity you no longer possess. And as a matter of fact, I'm convinced that a Christian Living in sin is probably the most miserable person on the planet, if you think about it. Christian living in unrepentant sin is probably the most miserable person on the planet. Why? Because you're a Christian, you can't really enjoy sin anymore. And because you are sinning, you can't really enjoy God. And so you're stuck in this place. As a believer, you can never really enjoy darkness because you're the light. And because you're the light, you can't really, uh, rather, you can't really enjoy walking in darkness. It's just you're in this place where, where you can't enjoy either side because you're, you're not living in the identity that you truly have become in Jesus. Sinning for the Christian is literally a monumental waste of time. It's when you think about it, just even logically, it is a monumental waste of time because Paul says, for at one time you were darkness, but now you are light. So walk as children of light. And what I want to do here is I want to, I want to end with, with two quick applications for this truth that, that I spoke to my church. I'm smart enough to know that there are, there, there are some men in this room right now and maybe even some women that are, are dealing with this issue in our lives, sexual sin, sexual morality. But again, as I said at the beginning of the message, all of you as church leaders are pastoring churches, leading small groups, uh, leading uh, youth groups that are mired in this. And so I wanna give you two points of application as in, in light of the truth that we were darkness, now we are light, we are to walk now in our new identity, and sin will never work anymore for us. Um, this truth, I think, answers one of, I don't think I know, it, it answers probably the most asked question I get asked as a pastor of a church full of college students and young singles and young families figuring out marriage. There's a question I get asked all the time as I've preached through this series. I've already gotten emails over and over again, people asking this question. I think you know the answer of it, but let me tell you what I, I say to people when I get asked this question. I get asked this question all the time by college kids, high school kids, singles. How far is too far? I get asked that all the time. How far is, is too far? Um, whether it's in a physical relationship, that, in their dating relationship, whether it's in a, a marital relationship, and the couple is asking that question about their, um, their marriage bed, 
they ask how far is too far. And I've always been bothered by that question. I've always been bothered by that question, and, and here's why. Because what people are really asking is um, they're, they're, they're trying to find a line somewhere where, where darkness and sin is on the other side of the line. And they're wanting to know how close can I get to the line without crossing over it. That's why the, the question has always bothered me, how far is too far? They're asking how close can I get to sin without actually sinning? And so when I, when I get asked that question, I always ask them a question. When somebody asks me that, how far is too far, I, I ask them this, that, that, that I ask them, are, are, you, are you a believer? Are you a Christian? Are you the light? Okay, if they say yes, then I ask them this. I say, do you really think that, that the fullness of your joy and the fullness of your happiness and, and contentment and peace is going to be found by inching towards the darkness. I'll look them in the face and say, if you are the light, which you say you are, do you really think that you're gonna find the fullness of satisfaction and happiness and peace and joy hugged up next to the darkness? You see, the answer is no. And the scripture actually is incredibly clear in answering the question, how far is too far? It's actually really, really clear. Don't turn there, just listen. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 18. Paul answers the question, how far is too far? You ready for this? Paul says, flee sexual immorality. There's the answer to your question. Flee sexual immorality. Run from sexual immorality. The Bible says that as believers, we don't find a line next to the darkness and see how close we can get to it. The Bible's saying that as believers, we find out where the line is next to the darkness and we turn around and we run the other way. That's what the scripture is saying to us. And so as a believer, as a pastor, as a person called to call your people to holiness, when, when you're making decisions um, such as you know, what's, what's my physical relationship in dating going to look like? When you're making decisions such as, you know, what movie am I going to go see on Valentine's Day weekend, this Valentine's Day? When you're, when you're making decisions as a man, is this website okay? Or is this website not okay? Is this website on the line for me to look at? When you're making decisions such as, is this friendship with this man or, or this woman that's not my husband, not my wife, is it okay? Do not let your decision be made by some line next to sin. Find out where that line is and that as a believer, as a child of light, you turn and you flee from it. That's the application. That's what the scriptures say. Here's the second application. This truth that we were darkness, but now in Christ we are the light. And this is a difficult one, and it was a tough one to preach in my church, and it's a tough one to preach here, but we need to hear it. And we need to be reminded of this, even as believers and as children of God. In fact, in right of the fact, rather, that the scripture tells us we, we were darkness, but now we are light. If you are okay with sin, if you're okay with sin in your life, 
If you are walking in darkness, sexual or otherwise, and you're okay with it, I don't care how long you've gone to church. I don't care if you're a seminary student. I don't care who you are. If you are walking in darkness and, and you're just okay with you, it's probably because you are darkness and you're not the light. I have people in my church that they'll come to me and they'll, they'll say, Matt, I'm sleeping with my girlfriend. And I'll ask them, are you a Christian? And they say, yes. And then I ask them, are you going to stop? And then they'll say, no. And then I'll say, well, it's probably because you're not the light. I have people in my church that will say, Matt, I'm, I'm having an emotional affair with XYZ at, at the office. And I'll ask them, are you a believer? Are you a Christian? They'll say, yes. I'll ask them, are you going to stop? And they'll say, no. And then I'll say to them, it might be because you're not the light. I've got men in my church say, Matt, I'm, I'm, I'm looking at pornography. Are you a Christian? Yes. Are you going to stop? I don't know. And I'll say to them, it, por pornography might be the least of your worries right now. Because you may be in that place because you don't have a, you don't have a pornography problem. You've got a salvation problem. You see, the scripture could not be clear on this issue in, in the epistle. John, 1 John chapter 3, verse 9, John makes the statement. He says that no one, got a Bible, underline that, no one, no one born of God makes a practice of sinning. No one who is born of God makes a practice of sinning. For God, why? For God's seed abides in him. The seed of the Lord is in you. You cannot make a practice of sinning. And he says that in the last part of the verse. He says, and he cannot keep sinning. He cannot keep sinning because he has been born of God. He doesn't say that a Christian never sins. He says that a Christian cannot keep sinning. Guys, I want you to know, I, I struggle and wrestle against sin as much as any person in this room. I do. I fight against sin as much as anybody in the room today. But you know how I know that I'm the light? You know one of the ways I'm certain that I'm the light? Is because I can't keep sinning. I can't. I've tried. I can't do it. One of two things happen in my life when I, when I sin. When I don't walk in my identity, one, if I sin, the Holy Spirit of God starts yelling at me really loudly, this is not who you are anymore. Stop. And I stop. And in the handful of times in my life where I've ignored the leading of the Holy Spirit and I've continued walking in sin, then the discipline of the Lord comes into my life and he makes me stop. Why? Because those who are born of God cannot keep sinning because the seed of the Lord abides in him. You see, the mark of a true believer is not sinlessness. The mark of a true believer is that you fight against sin. The mark of a true believer is not a complete lack of sin. The, the mark of a true believer is, is a repentance from sin. And if there's no fight, there's no light. 
And I want to end this message today by reminding us of the consequences of unrepentant sexual sins and how God deals with unrepentant sexual sin in Ephesians 5, 5. He says, for you may be sure of this, that everyone who is, that's a key word, who is, that's their identity, who is sexually immoral or impure, who is covetous, that is an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. That is the response to the sons of disobedience. But men and women, I want to remind you of something today. There is a radical difference between a son of disobedience and a son of the living God that fights against disobedience. There's a difference. There's there's an eternal difference. There's a difference between a son of disobedience and a son of the living God that fights with everything he is by the power of the Spirit against disobedience in his life. And the Lord has a radically different response to those of us who are sons of the living God who fight against disobedience. And you see it in the story of one of the greatest sexual sinners in the Bible, it's the prodigal son, who came to his dad and said, I wish you were dead. So give me my inheritance, and his father did, and he went to the faraway land, and the scripture says that he spent it all on prostitutes. But there was a moment in that young man's life when he realized this is not who I am. Sin is not my home. And so he came to his senses, Jesus said, and got up from the pig pen and began to walk home. And the Bible says that while he was still a long way off, Jesus said that the father had compassion on him and took off in a dead sprint and got to him, wrapped his arms around him, father took off his ring and put it on the son's finger because the son had sold his ring a long time ago. Father took off his robe and wrapped it around his son because his son took off his robe a long time ago and said, my son was dead, but now he is alive. So what is the response to the sexual sinner who repents and comes home as a son. It's not a lecture, not shame, but it's love and forgiveness and family and grace and peace. Let us be a generation of pastors that turns from, runs from, flees sexual immorality so that it could actually be said of us that sexual morality and purity could not even be named among us. Wouldn't that be great? Let's also be a generation of pastors that call our people from it back home to their father where they find forgiveness by the blood of Jesus. Let's pray together. Father, I I thank you for the gospel today. I thank you for the cross that reminds us that our righteousness is not found and how well we can walk out this door and live this out, but our righteousness is found in you. 
we thank you, Lord, that you were tempted in every way and yet without sin. And so we have an advocate in you. We thank you for that. Father, I pray if there's any in this room, God, that are wrestling and struggling with this, I pray that you would give them freedom, that you would grant them repentance, they would turn from it, and walk in their identity as the light. Pray that you would give them boldness to preach the truth to their congregations when that time comes. And I ask these things in Jesus' name. Thank you again for listening to this chapel message from Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary. If you are thinking about theological education on the undergraduate or graduate level, including doctoral studies, we hope that you consider us. If you also find these chapel messages encouraging and a blessing to your walk with Christ, we hope that you will consider financially supporting Southeastern. Our graduates are literally serving the kingdom across this globe, working to carry the gospel of Jesus Christ to a lost and dying world. Your gifts will help to train more, and they will serve as a worthwhile investment in God's kingdom. You can find more information about attending Southeastern or supporting us financially at www.sebts.edu. We covet your prayers and trust that God will bless every good work you do for His glory. Thank you for joining us in our chapel services.